0: Blog Talk Radio Hi everyone, welcome to the Born to Talk Radio Show I'm your host, Marsha Witeka Conversations plus connections equals community Those are my three C's The heart of my show is what's your story It's my belief we all have stories Some are similar, others are uniquely different Storytelling brings the passions of my guests to life through our conversations. So be prepared to be entertained, informed, and inspired. Welcome to today's show. Well, Happy Thanksgiving Week to all of you out there. This is certainly a time of the year when we all want to feel grateful for what we have in our lives, and I know I'm very grateful to all of you that listen in each week, and I thank you so very much. My guest today is Dr. John Potuli, and he is a medical physician, and his expertise, amongst others, is diabetes, and we're going to be talking a lot about that today, and I just want to welcome you to the show today, Dr. John.
1: I Thank you for having me, and I thank our listeners for listening.
0: Absolutely. And November is National Diabetes Awareness Month. And while we are at the end of this month, we both know that um, the awareness of diabetes is important year round. And I know that you have authored three books. Um, since 2015 and actually won some publisher awards for your books. I'm going to mention the name of your books right now and also I'll be talking certainly about your website so people can learn more, but you've written a book called Eat, Chew, Live for Revolutionary Ideas to Prevent Diabetes, Lose Weight and Enjoy Food. Woohoo! Diabetes, The Real Choice and the Right Cure, Eight Steps to Reverse Hype I'm sorry. You know, that's what it says. Thank you for interrupting. It says cause. You're absolutely right. And how to reverse the diabetes in eight weeks. We're going to spend quite some time talking about that and also surviving cancer, a new perspective on why cancer happens and your key strategies for a healthy life. And and I know that I, I believe you probably have another book in the works, but we can talk about that in a little bit. But before we get into the whole topic here of diabetes today sir. what I'd like you to do is just share a little bit of, about yourself with our listeners so we can get to know something about you
1: I'll be ha- happy to do that I'm originally from the state of Kerala in India. I did my medical school there I went to Scotland to do a res- internship. I came to this country to do residency and two years of residency, two years of fellowship, and then I was in practice in the state of Texas. I practiced there for 35 years. I retired when I was told by my son that we are going to be grandparents. So I uh, retired from my practice, came to Portland, Oregon, and then I had all these ideas about writing Uh, what is the physiology of hunger and satiation, for example, what makes you feel hungry? You cannot predict when you are going to be hungry. What makes you stop eating? We don't always eat the same volume of food each time, yet we feel satisfied. Why? And what happens to the food that, uh, that was absorbed into the body as nutrients? Where do they go? If you check your blood soon after a meal, the nutrient level, such as glucose, is high, but next morning, it is by, by, back to base, basal level. Where did it go? That led me to the next, week, uh, bu- next book, Diabetes, because I have a totally different view of type 2 diabetes from the conventional one, which I learned in my medical school. The third one was Surviving Cancer. That happened because 80 years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer, and I was scared like anybody else. I didn't know what would happen to me, to my wife and my grandkids. So I started looking into that. Then I found out the incidence of cancer is increasing all around the world. And if you look in the American Cancer Society website, you, they will say improper diet and lack of exercise. Really? Every, everywhere in the world people are eating improper diet even children are, having, are experiencing increased incidence of cancer. Is it because lack of exercise? I could not mm-hmm. agree with that, so I wrote the next book. So there, here you are, and I thank you for having me.
0: Well, and, and um, I hope that you are healthy today, sir. Um, I, I didn't know that you had had a cancer diagnosis, so I'm wishing you good health. Thank you, Perhaps. and I'm under
1: surveillance. I'm practicing what I have put in my book, and this Good. is eight years of a diagnosis. I am still here, and I don't plan to die of cancer.
0: There you go. Well, thank you. That's, that's, that's encouraging. I think it's always interesting to me to have my guests sort of take us through a glossary, for lack of a better term, to help help us understand things that we may not know about a subject, in this case, diabetes. And I think that the perfect place to start this conversation, sir, is what is diabetes? I, I, let's define what diabetes is. Well, uh, let
1: me just tell you this. 1.5 million people are diagnosed each year with type 2 diabetes in the United States. By 2030, we will have 55 million people with this disease. But it is not, ha- not only happening in the United States, but everywhere around the world. And it is diagnosed maybe after a routine blood test. Your doctor says your fasting blood sugar is high. You need to have an A1C. Your A1C level is higher than normal, and you are diagnosed And everybody knows, you know, I've heard about diabetes, they don't think much about it. In the olden days, it was thought to be a disease of adults, and it was also called adult-onset diabetes. And in developing countries, it was a stature symbol because only people who can afford to eat a lot of food got type 2 diabetes. The others did not, so it was a status symbol. But now what is happening is even younger and younger people are being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes based on elevated fasting blood sugar or A1C level. Hmm.
0: That's really interesting. So if we were going to just define diabetes, is it something that affects your pancreas? Where, where where does this how does this actually what is it actually is it is it a condition is it disease maybe you could help me understand that
1: well there's an official version and my version
0: okay the, let's hear yours the,
1: <laughs> well in order for us to understand my version you let me just say one sentence of the sure. official version the official 85% of the people with type 2 diabetes in this country are obese. So it is said weight gain and obesity is responsible for elevation of blood glucose. Now, when you say you're gaining weight, most of it happens after age 35 because your activity, physical activity level goes down. When an adult gains weight, it is strictly deposition of fat or storage of fat. Unless you do resistance exercise and increase your muscle mass, you're strictly storing fat. Uh, So the official, as I said, the official uh, explanation is, if you gain fat, your blood sugar can go up. My problem is I feel that the experts have it backwards. The reason I'm saying that is fat, once it is formed, cannot be converted back into glucose. Humans cannot do that. The only place where you see that happening is in a seed. The seed is full of fat, but if you, for the seed to germinate, it converts that fat into glucose so that the plants can grow. Whereas in humans, fat cannot be converted back into glucose, whereas Humans are uh, uh, very efficient in converting glucose into fat, better than even pigs, I think, because we we have our efficiency of conversion of glucose into fat is excellent. So in order to gain weight or the uh, the obesity epidemic that is happening all around the world and in the United States, for example, 40% of the adult Americans are obese right now, it is because we are providing a lot of glucose-containing, we are eating a lot of glucose-containing foods, and that elevation of glucose is responsible for weight. So if you look from a weight perspective, it, is, it happens later. So my point is it is the glucose that contributes to weight and not the other way around.
0: Okay, so the glucose is responsible for the weight gain. Okay. All right. That's interesting to know. Um, perhaps I, I know they're probably well. Yeah. Whenever you go to the doctor for the first time, your 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 family physician and they want to take a family history. Um, diabetes is always um, one of those questions. Cancer. Lots of different things are on that list. But what I would be interested in knowing is what is the difference between being classified a pre diabetic and diabetes. Is is there a difference? Well, in in theory
1: we can say we are all pre diabetic because we have blood sugar a normal level as long as it's below hundred milligram per deciliter, that is considered within the normal range. When it goes up, it is called a pre diabetic because it is not at the level of hundred and seventeen where it is diagnosed as diabetic or hemoglobin A1C, 5.7 to 6.4 is considered pre-diabetic and above that type two diabetic diagnosed. These are all arbitrary levels. There is no nothing uh, clear, you know, special about it. It is just the experts decided, okay, we have to give you a warning and The pre-diabetic just means warning, if you continue the same lifestyle, you Mm -hmm. are likely to to be diagnosed. And it also helps the doctor sometimes to prescribe some medication, and they say, oh, this can prevent you from developing type two diabetes. The problem there is, you want to do everything you can, and you are likely to start the medication. And the, if the medication keeps the blood sugar down, then you become complacent in not having to do any lifestyle changes. So that is the danger of this pre-diabetes. If you are want and if you are willing to consider lifestyle change, then it is helpful. If you are want, but if you want to st- just go straight to the medication, then it
0: is troublesome. I see. When you take, and I believe I know the answer to this, when you go to the doctor and you have blood work done and you go fasting, is that required when you have an A1C um, blood test? Well, A1C is an average blood
1: level uh, of three months. Now, what what does A1C mean? When glucose is absorbed into the body, that glucose molecule can get attached to different proteins in the body. And one of the proteins it gets attached to is hemoglobin. And the percentage of hemoglobin protein with glucose is what you are measuring. But the lifespan of the red blood cell is three months. Every three months they are taken out of circulation and new blood cells are being formed. This, this happens continuously. But if you take, follow one single red blood cell, it will last only three months. So if we can measure the percentage of hemoglobin with glucose molecules attached, that gives you an average of blood, blood sugar level or blood glucose level for the last three months. So it is more stable, more convenient long-term. Whereas day-to-day, morning fasting blood sugar can fluctuate uh, wildly. So that, wildly, that is the reason.
0: And I just want to reiterate for people that are listening and perhaps taking notes. I know I often take notes, and this is certainly a show where I'm taking notes. So if you have an A1C level between 5.7 and 6.4 percentage, you are considered pre-diabetic and at the risk of developing type type 2 diabetic, which is anything above 6.5, basically. Anything under... Five point seven. You're doing okay. That is correct. That is the uh,
1: yeah.
0: Okay. Well, that that's really helpful. And while we're, I know we're going to be spending a great deal of time talking about type two diabetes because because we both know, and I've learned from listening and talking to you both prior to our show that there's a way to reverse that. But before we get to the type two. I would just like to make this somewhat personal now for me and talk about a very good friend of mine whose son, when he was a toddler, was um, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And then almost 13 years later, his older brother was also diagnosed. And I think it would be really helpful for us to understand what what exactly is type 1 diabetes. Not so much how does it differ from two, but maybe you could just really tell us what is type 1 diabetes. Well, when you
1: talk about type 2 diabetes, we are talking about the role of insulin. So the first thing to understand is what is insulin and how does it work? Right. Insulin is a hormone released in the body from our uh, pancreas. Insulin is what informs cells of the presence of glucose outside. Even though every cell can use glucose to produce energy, when glucose is outside, the cell has no way of knowing. In other words, if you have a visitor or if your mailman comes, You don't know it until the male man rings the doorbell. Glucose has no way of letting the cell know because there is no receptor for glucose outside the cell. That job is for insulin to do. When insulin rings the doorbell of the cell, the cell knows from the ringtone who is ringing the bell. That means there is glucose outside. Now the... That does not mean automatic entry for glucose. The cell has to send in a wagon or to the door, open the door, load up the wagon with glucose and bring it in. But imagine if there is no insulin outside. This happens early in childhood. The child is not producing, or child's pancreas is not producing insulin. The child is eating there's plenty of glucose in the blood but cells don't know about it they cannot get it inside they cannot use it and these children hundred years ago used to die before age 10 then in 1920s uh, doctors banting and best in canada discovered insulin they injected a dog with a type 1 diabetes with insulin, the dog survived. At the same time, they had a nine-year-old boy dying of type 1 diabetes, and they injected that boy, and that boy survived. And later, every child with type 1 diabetes was treated successfully with insulin, and their lifespan became almost as normal as anybody else. And Jocelyn Clinic in Boston is named after Dr. Elliot Jocelyn, who treated the maximum number of type 1 diabetics in the world as a single physician. So that is the story of type 1 diabetes. Now the question is, why is the pancreas not able to produce insulin? In the pancreas, there are a group of cells called islet cells. They specialize in producing insulin. And in type 1 diabetes, what happens is, we all have immune cells to fight infection. For example, when you have a bacterial infection, it is your white cells uh, that attack and kill the bacteria. But the white cells need to identify that the bacteria is foreign, it is not normal because we have normal bacteria in our intestine, in the large intestine. You don't want to kill the normal bacteria. But if it is a foreign infectious bacteria, the immune system needs to know. So how does it do that? The white cell identifies, they are trained to identify what is normal, what is called innate immunity. Every cell in our body has a badge, a protein on the surface, which lets the immune cell identify, okay, this is a normal, and the bacterial protein is different, that is abnormal, so it attacks the bacteria. Now, what happens is in some children, their intestine will get inflamed, and one of the reasons people, uh, experts say is, wheat products like gluten and gliadin in some people can produce intestinal inflammation without, even without any intestinal symptoms. So there is inflammation. Either these proteins can get inside, or proteins not that should enter, they can foreign protein can enter the body, and these proteins may have a similarity to the badge of islet-producing cells that produce islet cells that produce insulin. So the badge is very similar. The immune system will try to attack those cells with a similar badge and destroy the insulin producing cells so that is one of the theories to explain the increasing incidence of type 1 diabetes in the united states so in in short wheat and gluten and gluten containing grains such as barley rye oats and hybrids of wheat may all uh, produce if they produce inflammation that person may be more susceptible. So it may be familial because if the family eats the same food and if they have inherited a tendency to have inflammation in the intestine, that could explain the increasing incidence of type 1 diabetes. It's a lengthy explanation, but I hope I made it clear.
0: You did, and I guess what I'd want to know if, I mean, my children are in their 40s. But if I was listening today, and I had young children, is there a symptom? Is there something that says something's not right here? Is there some some symptom that just like in, in the in the case of my friend, I know her son got very ill. Is that what happens? Do you become very ill?
1: It, it can manifest in different ways. It may be tiredness because he cannot generate energy. It may be urination because that glucose passes, it's a water-soluble thing, so the kidney has to get it out, frequent urination, and that produces thirst. It may be hunger because the cells are not getting the energy or the fuel to produce energy. So it can be different symptoms, and the doctor will have to do a blood test, and then you will know immediately what's going on.
0: And I suppose that would be the recommendation, is that if, indeed, whether your child is a toddler or a teenager, if they're behaving in a way that they weren't behaving before, like you mentioned, the thirst. I, I remember knowing many years ago, because there's been diabetes in, in my aunts, uncles, and cousins and things, um, the desire to want to chew on ice. It's like you couldn't, you couldn't get enough uh, water in your system, you were just continually thirsty, and it was like, "What are you doing?" And that is actually what happened in my friend's family, where the older son was just had this insatiable thirst he couldn't quench. And as it turns out, that's that's what happened, and it's 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 most unfortunate, but it's the reality of their lives. Um, if I may, ahead, make did you one want more res- point?
1: Please. Yes. Uh, please. Those who are listening, if they have a child or a relative with type 1 diabetes, they, are, they have to be on insulin. Without insulin, they cannot survive. But the higher the dose of insulin, insulin itself can have metabolic effects and side effects. So you want to use as minimum insulin dose as possible. And one way you can reduce the dose of insulin and save some money in, 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 along with it is to reduce the intake of glucose-releasing foods into the system. And most of those come from grains. So the, the least amount of grains you can consume, the lower the need for insulin dosage.
0: Thank you. That's really useful, and I'm hoping that that piece of information will help those that are listening, including one of my friends that has a grandson with type one, um, I hope that that's helpful, especially at this time of year. I'd like to spend some time now really talking about type two, because I know your books have talked about this, and I know that it's a lifestyle and it's a con- and it's a condition, not a disease. And so let's let's spend some time really delving into the the type two diabetes, if you'd like.
1: Okay. Where do you want me to start
0: well um I one thing that I thought was pretty staggering was um I heard you say the amount of people that are constantly being diagnosed is just staggering, and basically, what I'm hearing you say is that so much of this is um, diet related. I'm sure exercise certainly helps, but let's let's really talk about these these grains and this consumption of grains and, and and talk about how you know you feel that this can be reversed i mean that's what your book is about i would love for you to really share that information with our listeners well uh, as far as
1: uh, the number is concerned yes 1.5 million people are being diagnosed every year we are spending almost a billion dollars a day treating type 2 diabetes. And if we do not take control of this, there won't be any money left in Medicare. In about 10 years' time, Medicare can go bankrupt just treating people with type 2 diabetes. And the next comes the epidemic of cancer. So it is very serious. Even people who don't have, we are all paying for the care through our taxes and um, insurance premiums because insurance companies have to or the government will have to pay uh, somehow. And so we are all going to pay pay for it whether we like it or not. So it is important for everybody to realize how can we reduce the expense of related to type two diabetes? Of course, in any disease that costs that much, that costs that much money, the first thing is can we avoid unnecessary treatment? Now, I may be diverging that from a little bit in this regard, but I just want to make a point: there are some diseases or some procedures that we use in type two diabetes that has not been shown to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Here I'm specifically referring to home glucose monitoring. Everybody is supposed to monitor and they are encouraged to monitor your blood sugar level three times, four times, or multiple times a day. The sad truth is there is no evidence to suggest that frequent monitoring of blood glucose in at home leads to better glucose control or lowering of type 2 diabetic complications. We are spending Mm -hmm. almost $10 billion a year just for the testing and equipment because Medicare and insurance companies are asked to pay for it. So that is one way you can control some cost. The second is in any disease, In order to control or reverse the disease, you need to know the exact cause. Right now, type 2 diabetes is diagnosed because of what we call insulin resistance. How did this come about? As we mentioned earlier, type 1 diabetes, the children were treated with insulin and they got better, their lifespan increased, their complications diminished, their quality of life improved. So they, the endocrinologists who treated children with type 1 diabetes and high blood sugar became experts in anybody coming with high blood sugar. So automatically when adults showed up with high blood sugar, they were given insulin injections and their blood sugar did go down. And everybody thought at that time that type 2 diabetes is similar to type 1 what's happening at a later date. Then came the test. At that time, initially, there were no tests available to measure insulin in the blood. When that test became available, to everybody's surprise, they found out adults have normal levels of insulin while they also have high levels of glucose. So how could this be? So they looked at the structure of insulin molecule. Maybe something wrong with the structure. No, the structure was fine. They looked at the function of insulin produced by people with type 2 diabetes. How did they do that? They isolated insulin from a type 2 diabetic and injected into a normal person. And that blood sugar went down. In in other words, the functional part was clear. So they could not figure out why these people are having high blood sugar when they also have normal, or in some cases, even higher than normal insulin in the blood. So in 1940, Mm -hmm. one doctor in Vienna proposed, it looks like these cells are not responding to insulin. There is something, maybe something wrong with the cell. It is not something wrong with insulin. And that non-response made the endocrinologist so happy they turned it around into resistance to insulin now let me ask you this suppose you are hungry i bring you food if you refuse that food can i say you
0: are resisting feeding i don't know it sounds like it i don't want to eat maybe you you are refusing I it i
1: agree but that doesn't yes. mean you
0: are resisting
1: feeding. Maybe you just f- finished eating. You may, maybe you right. don't like that food. Maybe your stomach right. is That's upset. True. So there can be different reasons why. But instead of looking at why the insulin is not able to let glucose or glucose into the cell or why the cell is not accepting glucose, they immediately diagnosed this is, the cell is resisting. But the interesting part is most of the time when you are diagnosed, you are not look you know, you have no symptoms. Even persons diagnosed with type two diabetes, they can run, they can play, they can jog. That means their muscles are working, right? Mm hmm. So how can the muscles work when or produce energy when it is not letting glucose in? Unless the muscle is like a hybrid car. A hybrid car can run on gasoline or electricity. If it is running on gasoline, at that time is the engine resisting in electricity or vice versa? No. No. That is the way it is designed. So when you are, when you, if you have not eaten all day, suppose you are a pregnant woman and then you have been vomiting, you but you still function. You have no problem. So where is the energy coming from? Our muscles are just like a hybrid car. It is designed, they are designed to produce energy either from glucose or from fatty acid. In fact, 80% of the energy during every day comes from fatty acid, not from glucose. So if there are plenty of fatty acids in the environment outside the cell, the cell is programmed to switch to fatty acid for producing energy leaving glucose outside in the blood even if there is insulin there the muscles don't need the cells don't need glucose that is why it appears to be resisting insulin it does not need it on the other hand when you are exercising even if you are a diabetic the muscles will accept glucose An exercising or active muscle does not need insulin to let glucose enter the muscle it will automatically look for glucose and let it in so that muscle uh, insulin resistance theory has never been validated through science may i go on oh please this is this is a class it, in in any scientific hypothesis you have three criteria before it is accepted one it should be logical Second, you should show a mechanism. Third, you should have something to measure. Now, let me take the last one. Have you ever heard of measurement of the degree of insulin resistance? No. No. Why can't we measure? Because there is no such thing. It is a conceptual. As I mentioned, it is just insulin is there, glucose is there, okay, you are resistant. It is not a, a real thing. It is just an explanation of a condition. So there is no measurement of insulin resistance. Now, what is the mechanism? Before we go to the mechanism, let me say the logic. There are 200 different types of cell in the body, but only three are considered resistant to insulin. Only three. 197, no problem with insulin. Muscles, fat, and liver Now, who selected these three? (laughs) uh, Or did they join a a union and say, from tomorrow we are (laughs) going to uh, resist insulin? Why? Insulin is a normal, natural hormone that they were responding to all these years. And suddenly, this is the the, the biggest surprise. Nobody has explained a reason why these cells are resisting insulin. There's no logic to it. Somebody picked those three because that helped them to explain the laboratory findings. Not completely, but somehow they can get away with it. That is how they picked. Now, if there are three different sites, is the mechanism of resistance. Now we are looking at the cell. The insulin rings the doorbell. The cell is not responding. Is it the same reason in the muscle? The muscle, it needs glucose for this energy. But the liver, is it the same reason? Or the fat cells? Fat cells don't usually produce energy. So what is their reason for refusing entry of glucose? Nobody knows. There is no explanation as to the logic or the mechanism. And as I said, there is no measurement. So this is what is going on with type 2 diabetes diagnosis. Now, where do you want me to go from here?
0: Wow. <laughs> you know, I, hope you I hope you're all catching. I hope you're. This is a show people are going to have to replay to take this all in because it's a lot of information. I think what what I what I know about you, I know a little bit about you, is that you've been quoted as saying that that the grains are the real cause of diabetes. Why why do you say so? Okay. As I said,
1: muscles are like hybrid engine. They can use fatty acid or glucose. And I also said if there is plenty of fatty acids in the blood, the muscles will automatically switch to fatty acid, burning, leaving glucose in the cells. So the question is, where are the fatty acids coming from? If After you eat a meal, within four hours, whatever food you consumed it's digested, and it's absorbed into the body. And if you check your blood sugar level, if you have eaten grains, your blood sugar level will go up. And in another four hours, that sugar will be absorbed by cells in the body because insulin is elevated. Insulin will knock on the door of every cell in the body the cell accepts it, and the leftover will come back to the liver. And insulin will tell the liver, "Okay, everybody's happy. They have had their full uh, store of glucose. This is leftover." The liver can keep only 120 grams of glucose as a complex carbohydrate called glycogen, that can be released back into the blood when the blood sugar level goes down that is the back
0: it just happens automatically
1: yes i see but it's only 120 grams that is all the liver can keep everybody keeps that okay the liver then converts the excess glucose into fat that is the fat we store and gain weight it is called triglyceride that means tri means three three molecules of fatty acid produced from glucose connected to a glycerol molecules, molecule for stability. And this triglyceride is sent to your fat cells for storage, whether it is in your buttocks, in your legs, in your abdomen, in your breast, it doesn't matter. Wherever there are fat cells, it will go. The, the triglyceride, which is the fat, cannot enter the fat cell as is because it's too large a molecule. But there is an enzyme called lipase sitting outside the fat cell, chop the triglyceride back into fatty acid so that the fatty acid can now enter the fat cell. Imagine what will happen if the fat cell is already full. The fatty acid will stay Mm -hmm. in the blood. Mm -hmm. And that is what causes the muscle to switch to fatty acid burning, leaving glucose in the blood. So it is what you are inheriting. If you have a family history, what you are inheriting is the fat storage capacity. You may have only 10 pounds of fat storage capacity. Suppose you have a 20 cubic feet refrigerator. Your neighbor has 10 cubic feet refrigerator. If you both buy the same amount of food, if you buy enough to fill up your refrigerator, your neighbor may not be able to. The same with fat storage. If you have a 50-pound fat storage capacity, if you gain 50 pounds of weight, before that, you will not be a diabetic. But once you pass that threshold, the fatty acids stay in the blood, muscles switch to fatty acid, burning, and leaving glucose in the blood. This is why sometimes you see people who are obese, but normal blood sugar because they inherited a huge fat storage capacity. This okay, is may, I interrupt
0: you? may I interrupt sure. you one one quick? With all of the knowledge that we have in medicine today, I'm sure this is not a realistic question, but I'm going to ask it because it comes to my mind. Is there any way to determine what our fat storage capacity is that we've inherited? That is a very good question. Yes, that's a very
1: practical question. What we have to do is to look at your triglyceride level in the blood because your triglyceride level will start going up months or years before you become a diabetic. That's a very interesting, very good question. Most people don't pay attention to the triglyceride. That is the fat. So the fat is staying in the blood. That means... There's no place for it to be stored outside the blood. Ordinarily, it should be outside the blood, inside fat cells. So that's an excellent question. So is anyway.
0: there a number is there, a, is there a, just like you, you were talking about you know anything over six point five, you know is there, is there a number for triglycerides that's considered where you're healthy and where you're not so healthy?
1: Well, each person can be different. So what you have oh. to do is look at year by year, whether it's going up, usually about 100 milligram. If you can keep it below 100, you're fine. But what is each person, you have to look at it, because if it is starting to go up year after year, you are in trouble. Mm-hmm. I
0: see. This is so what, it's, this Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I, this, you started to say this is why, and I interrupted you. This is why. In India,
1: 60% of the people who are diagnosed type 2 diabetes are considered normal weight or even underweight. This is why children are developing type 2 diabetes because they are filling up their fat storage capacity. They may have new fat cells, but they cannot come online fast enough because they are eating so much. This is why a pregnant woman who never had a history of type 2 diabetes Or, no family history of diabetes can become, can be diagnosed with gestational diabetes after gaining 25 pounds of weight and then lose it after the birth of the child because she lost weight, emptied out the fat cell, and now the glucose can be stored as triglyceride inside the fat cell. So, this theory explains, regardless whether you are a child, whether you are lean whether you are pregnant or even without any family history of type 2 diabetes
0: interesting i would like to spend this remaining part of our show together talking about some of the highlights within your book which i think is is so very important because maybe somebody's listening today and is going to be highly motivated to perhaps watch what they eat for thanksgiving over this uh, and, the, and Christmas and the holidays that are coming upon us. So let's 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 hit on some of those very important topics. And starting with um, one of the things I know that you've that you've written about of these eight steps within your book is eliminate the grains from your diet. T- talk a little bit about that.
1: I look at grains in this fashion. If nature intended grains for humans, we would have had beaks and the ability to digest the chaff. We don't. About 60 years ago, we had the Green Revolution, and green production was supported by every government in every country because that was the cheapest way to feed people. The cheapest foods available and the most processed foods or convenient foods available are all made of grains to the point that, to the level that 50% 50% of the total energy, daily energy intake now in the developed countries come from grains, and 70% in developing countries come from grains. So we are putting an enormous amount of glucose into the body, and this is what is causing the fat storage, the, fat, uh, the muscle switching to fatty acid burning, leaving glucose in the blood and the epidemic of type 2 diabetes. Here, let me make another word that is cautionary. When blood glucose level is elevated, it stimulates the pancreas to release insulin. Insulin promotes the growth of all cells in the body, including cancer cells. Cancer cells form in our body every few years at random, but the body can take care of it eliminated with our immune system, unless the cancer cells are prompted prompted to grow faster, and insulin does that along with glucose. The cancer cells use to grow. So that is a cautioner caution that we need to, we all need to be uh, thinking of.
0: Mm-hmm. Is there um, one of the one of your steps? Is I, I note is um, is that your to reconnect with your authentic weight. Would you define what authentic weight means?
1: Because the, right now, the weight, everybody is considered obese or normal or underweight based on a weight table. There is no ethnic based weight table, it is one weight table. And that even within each class of height and gender, there is a 20 pound variation or range. How do you know whether you are supposed to be at the lower end of the range or the upper end? Just like the pregnant woman who gains 25 pounds and become gestational diabetic. By the way, that lady, when she is in the 40s and 50s, if she gains the same amount of weight, she could become diabetic, regardless of whether she is pregnant or not. Anyway, hmm. so what is your weight? you don't know. So the one way to know that is if your fasting blood sugar is normal, if your fasting triglyceride is normal, if you are over age twenty or twenty five or mid twenties, then that is just about right your authentic weight. And that is what you want to get back to later on. Then you will not have any problem.
0: I see. Um I I there, this this is this is obviously years and years and years of training and you know this you could probably teach this as a college course over a six week period of time so I'm going to pick and choose a couple of these other steps just for the virtue of time particularly based on the fact of the holidays coming up so. I would like to ask you this. How do you recommend overcoming the tendencies to overeat when you look at that table and you don't want just pumpkin pie, but you also want boysenberry pie and apple pie and you just had a bunch of stuffing and, oh, my God, somebody made fresh rolls. How how do you overcome your tendencies to overeat, particularly this time of year? Well, you have to go back to nature. How did
1: nature provide or intended to, for humans to get all the nutrients from. If you look in nature, can you think of anything that nature provided that he, adult humans can get nutrients from without chewing? No. No. When you eat soft, you know when you take a bite of uh, food, after you stop chewing, what do you
0: do? Just, well... I many just you swallow it. Uh, you swallow. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. So the less the the softer the
1: food the less you chew. And the <sighs> less you chew the faster you eat. So, you know, I feel sorry for people who do blending and pureeing and in the thinking that they can get more nutrients. The problem is how do you decide how much? Once you blend it, you're not going to waste it. You are going to consume. So what is your signal for stopping? How do you decide the quantity? The softer the food, the less chewing. And the less chewing, the faster eating. The faster you eat, the more you eat. That is one of the biggest problems. Now, nature has a signal as I mentioned earlier, nay how do you know you cannot predict when you are going to be hungry. Mm-hmm. And let us assume let me tell you an example. Suppose we go to a buffet and there are hundred items, how many will you choose?
0: I'm not gonna no. choose more I'm not gonna choose very many. I mean oh, I me might want to. Um well, you're asking five, me personally. Yeah, five, six with the okay. idea of maybe going back again.
1: Right. <laughs> or what would be the basis of choosing those five or six? On what basis?
0: For me, it would be uh-huh. what 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 looks good and what I think tastes good.
1: In other words, that's based on your previous experience. You know these taste good, and you will pick them, you will sit down, you will enjoy them, Right
0: correct
1: suppose we go back to the same buffet for evening now, this is for lunch now evening will you take exactly the same five or six items
0: maybe not why not
1: May- you you know um, you, you enjoyed them
0: but i think what i what would be what would be going through my mind is but pretty soon i'm going to go to bed and I'm not going to get any more exercise after dinner because now I'm going to sit down and watch television. After lunch, I might have gone to the gym or taken a walk. So now I've eaten this heavier food, and now what?
1: Do you? I'm idea. talking about the selection of items. How many? How right. will you choose? Will you choose exactly the same?
0: I don't think I would choose exactly the same, but but would most Why people? Why not?
1: Yeah. Why I,
0: not? I don't Do know. Do you
1: think I guess we, hmm, you need something that's a good different? good question. Right. Yeah. What I'm suggesting is there is a physiological reason. The nutrients you absorb from lunch, the food from lunch, are still in your body, but in the meantime, the body has used up other nutrients, which are represented in the new foods that you have chosen, because your brain knows what nutrients are needed, and which food contains those needed now. So there is a physiological reason. You have to let your brain tell you or at least prompt you. The subconscious mind prompts you, and the conscious mind decides. (laughs) And <laughs> I think that's has...
0: really, that's. I have to interrupt you because the conscious mind might say, do not have a second piece of pie, but the conscious mind goes, but it was so good, I'll just have a little bit more. That's the problem, exactly. right?
1: Uh, yes, <laughs> you have conditioned ourselves. So it is the conditioning overriding or overruling the physiological system and we are making it easier for that conditioning to take hold by eating foods prepared with nutrient concentration higher than what is presented in nature in terms of sweetness and even worse in in terms of salt content. Every prepared food contains at least five, six times more salt than required for the body. So we have become conditioned yes. to the mm-hmm. foods that are prepared because of their taste and the intensity of nutrients, the taste based on nutrients, has been increased to the level we are almost addicted to that taste. So that taste makes it makes us wanting to eat more. More compelling. Of, not,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Not because so, uh, of nutrient I'll, I'll, need.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think what you said was so key, and I just want to understand, so the softer the, chew, the softer the food, the more we tend to eat, because we don't have to work very hard. So it, did I understand that I understood that correctly, right? Yes. So, for instance, um, the mashed potato is going to be very easy to consume because it just goes in so easily. That carrot. Right. That raw carrot, not so much. Now, I don't know if carrot was a good choice. I'm trying to think of something that would, requires more like chewing. Fruit,
1: fr- fruit juice or fruit, regular uh, fruit, uh, a cut fruit. What would oh, you take, uh, you know, what can go down faster?
0: Right. Something you have That's to all chew, I can, regardless. Because right. you're right. It, you're making me realize this now as I'm here, as you're repeating this. There, you don't chew mashed potatoes, not really, but you do right. chew your fruit. You do chew your protein. Um, right. And so I, I, you don't really chew soup necessarily, although unless there's meat in it or something like that. Got it. But, right. But that's so. For if if you were going to say in these last few minutes we have together, and I knew we would run out of time. First of all, I before I even ask this question, I do want to tell people that you have an incredible website, and it's very easy to find. And it's and I want to tell people what that is, which is. It's the www we're all familiar with, dr for doctor John, John on, O-N, dot com. So that's Doctor John On Health You have YouTube videos. You have it's a sensational site, and there is a lot, a lot of information about your books. There, there's just so much about you that I would I would feel terrible not mentioning that because I know that people might be listening, and going, I I I need to grasp more of this from from him. And you even have a way to um, to subscribe to a webmail. So there's there's a lot on there for people to understand, including the fact that. Um, you know, you touched on it just slightly about your own personal self, but about the cancer connection to to our diet as well. There's a lot, there's, a, there's so much that really you and I could have spoke about. And I suppose if you were going to say to everybody stepping up to that Thanksgiving table today, if there was just one thing you could sort of be more conscious of, Maybe it's what you chew and, and how much you chew and how much you eat. Would would you say that consumption is very important?
1: I'll, I'll say two things. One is on my website or anywhere, I'm not selling any gadgets or tablets or anything. No, I know what you're not. I, what I want to do is to give you information so that you can be in charge of your own health. Don't give it to a medication. Don't give it to a doctor because you know your body you have to learn how your body works. The best teacher for you will be a toddler, a toddler, any, any child. It doesn't have to be your own grandson or whatever, or son, so four to six years of age. How do they eat? You will see three things. One, they won't eat unless they are hungry. Two, they will pick and choose and enjoy what they eat. Third, when they are done, they could care less how much is left on the plate. They go out and play be like them and you will be fine.
0: Oh my goodness. That was profound. Now, you know I'm taking notes. And so what you said was know your body and pay attention to that 4 to 6 year old. Watch how they pick and choose what they eat. You do I I got to don't they don't finish their plate, which was number 3. I couldn't write number 2 fast enough, which was what?
1: Enjoy, eat what you enjoy, enjoy what you eat. And more importantly, enjoy. Because take your time, chew the food, enjoy it. Because that's why you're eating. That's what nature put enjoyment. If you eat something that you don't enjoy, why? Because there is no nutrient value in it. Wow. Well, eat and enjoy. With no diabetes, I, no gain.
0: This, is, this has been absolutely Um, tremendous. The timing of this is tremendous and your knowledge base clearly is just so um, phenomenal. And as you said, you're not out selling a product here. I understand you're not selling a product, but you have written books. And, And do you have a fourth book on the horizon for yourself? Yes. The
1: average age of an adult with cancer, when I was researching my own, I found out to be 65 years of age, and I was told that it is because it takes accumulated accumulation of mutations of six decades for a cancer cell to appear. When I was giving a talk on cancer, I was asked by a cancer specialist, "But doctor, the average age of a child with cancer is six. How do you explain that? That made mm-hmm. me start thinking. The child has not lived long enough to accumulate mutations. Can there be cancer without mutations? So if you want to know the answer, read my
0: book. There you go. And is is that a book that's yet to be published, or is is that in the Surviving surviving Cancer book?
1: No, that is yet to be published. Uh, It will be be in February. When your child has cancer, that will be the title.
0: When your child has cancer, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Um, I don't know when that book will be out. If it will be out this coming year or not, but that would be oh, a really. very interesting. Well, you know, that will be a very interesting time for you to rejoin me next year when that book is released, and I think that people would find that just as very informative and as interesting as this conversation has been about diabetes. I don't think you can ever have too much information on this. And once again, people can go to your Dr. John on health.com site. They can, they can um, be, be more knowledgeable. I know I sure learned a lot more than I knew before this conversation. And I'm just so appreciative at this time of year when everyone is so busy that you've taken the time out, that you've retired, that you've put some, after all these years of work, you've um, added your 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 family by being in Portland and being with your grandchildren and your family. Um, I just wish that you all have a very blessed Thanksgiving, Dr. John, and, and I'm so, so grateful for you joining me today on the show.
1: And I thank you, and uh-huh. I thank our listeners.
0: Okay. Everybody, are you wondering if I'm going to have a show next week? Well, as a matter of fact, I am. I'm going to do two shows. I'm actually going to do three shows in December, and then I'm going to take the last two weeks off. But next week, I'm going to have someone on my show that's a Rotary Peace Builder, and I met him at one of my Rotary meetings, and he has an organization called Mediators Beyond Borders. His name is Scott Martin, and he'll be on my show next week. But for now... Wherever you are, wherever your travels take you, please be safe, enjoy these holidays, and I wish you all a wonderful week. Thanks again, Dr. John, for joining me today.
1: Thank you.